Retirement Tips Radio is brought to you by Business Radio X, the voice of business in your community. Currently serving over 25 markets, the Business Radio X network is growing fast. We're teaming up with retired execs and established entrepreneurs to support and celebrate local business leaders. If you'd like to make additional income while making a difference, discover more at brxteam.com. Now, here's your host. Lee Cantor here, another episode of Retirement Tips Radio, and this is going to be a good one. Today we have with us Jeff Gitterman with Gitterman Wealth Management. Welcome, Jeff. Thank you, Lee. Pleasure to be here. Well, before we get too far into things, tell us about Gitterman Wealth Management. How are you serving folks? Well, aside from being a traditional wealth management firm, we're focused on sustainable and impact investing as our core competency. So um, how'd you get into that line of work? You know, back in uh, 2015, so I've had the firm since 1990, but back in 2015, I helped produce a movie called Planetary, and it was with uh, some thought leaders around climate change and sustainability, Bill McKibben and Paul Hawken, and a group of astronauts, Ron Garin, and a few others, and uh, just started to shift the way I thought about my role in the world, and uh, while I was interested in a lot of this stuff in my personal life, I hadn't really merged it into my business life and my passion. And 2015 was called the, the year sustainable investing became sustainable. And it just all came together for me. And I realized that for me to be happy, I had to pursue my personal passions within my business life. And I, I couldn't keep bifurcating the two. Now, um, is there any research that says this kind of impact investing is not only just good for humanity, but also good for business? You know, there is tons of research. Uh, there's also contradicting, you know, reports as well, but there's over 2,200 studies that were done um, in a meta study uh, back in 2000 and I think it was 12 that says overwhelmingly that sustainable and ESG factors to provide alpha for investments. Um, but, but even more importantly than now, when you look out at the landscape of what we're dealing with today, it's hard to not pick up the paper and read something about physical climate risk addressing um, the capital markets, whether it's fires in California or, you know, supersized hurricanes, you know, hitting the Gulf and dropping 24 inches of rain in two hours. It, it's, just a, a shifting landscape. And we do believe that incorporating the threat of physical risk and the capital markets into portfolio analysis is going to be critical work over the next, uh, unfortunately, few decades at least. Now, when more and more firms are like yours that are saying that this is important to us and this is where we're going to kind of um, aim our the wealth that we're managing, is, are you seeing kind of industry change that they, like people are saying, look, we're going to have to be more responsible. We can't just kind of um, change our logo and make it green or do some, you know, kind of superficial. So we look like that we're, we're doing the right thing. We're going to have to really do some work that matters. 
Well, you know, there's definitely a spectrum of it. Uh, greenwashing, which is, you know, what they've labeled the, the concept of saying you're doing something in sustainability without really backing it up is definitely a prevalent part of the industry right now. There's a lot of fund name changes without the underlying fund really changing. But there's also some real concentrated effort and work being done by great firms like Federated and Schroeder's and Metixis and Alliance, Bernstein and PIMCO, where they're really diving deep into what it means to be a sustainable company and sell sustainable products. Um, and you're certainly hearing a lot of pressure, you know, from even bigger, you know, giants in the industry, whether it's Larry Fink and his letter in January that if his, you know, companies that they're invested in don't start addressing climate risk, that they're going to put pressure on the boards. So a lot of things are changing. I don't know if you saw the other day, but UBS announced last week that they were coming out in the marketplace and saying that sustainable investing is actually the preferred way to invest going forward. So they're the first big firm that has actually made a bold statement to clients that this is the direction that all their clients should be going in. Now, do you believe that this is something that business should be kind of regulating themselves, or do you think it, it needs kind of the government to uh, come in and, and give it incentives to change? So it depends on which side you're looking at. For climate change, I think you definitely need government incentives. You need a carbon tax and maybe a carbon dividend, too, and, and that is going to be critically important to figure out how to price climate risk into the market. Um, but from the ESG and sustainable landscape, there, there has to be some agreement within the industry. And you're starting to see SASB, the Sustainable Accounting Standards Board, and, and GRI um, start to come together and work on kind of an industry-approved set of standards or a materiality map. Because the, the big dissent against sustainable investing or ESG is that your values shouldn't be represented in your portfolios if they can't be proven to drive additional alpha. And uh, what materiality maps do is they look at where are these factors around sustainability actually material to stock price. So getting uh, a narrower range of definitions around that is definitely important, but the industry is kind of moving in that direction on their own right now. But on climate, you definitely need government intervention like we're seeing across Europe. Now, in your work, um, does having this social impact um, kind of um, true north as part of your firm, did that help you in terms of recruiting talent to be part of the firm or are you yeah. uh, attracting a different type of uh, per professional? <clears throat> it, you know, it has a huge, huge impact. I can't overstated enough. If you want to attract young, smart people, um, having a financial firm that, you know, has a um, heavy leaning towards sustainable and impact investing has been really a, a huge blessing. Um, we get, you know, tons of resumes on a regular basis. The sustainability programs at the leading universities are the most oversold programs being offered right now, those and behavioral ones too. But at MIT, at NYU, at Columbia, the sustainable programs are sold out um, quicker than really any other programs right now. So you're, you're seeing a huge amount of young talent go in that direction. And, and there's a lot of 
grabbing at that from, you know, the companies that are trying to go sustainable. So from corporate interests. So as a financial firm, in order for us to compete for that talent, having that driving interest and, and having a brand awareness in the marketplace that this is what we're focused on has been an incredible asset to us. Definitely. Was that a surprise to you or unintended consequence or did you kind of see that coming? No, you know, I, I have a real belief that each generation has a little bit more interconnected, stronger values about connection and the planet than the prior generation. And, and that's something that I've thought for the last, you know, 25, 30 years or so. And um, I've done educational work on that as, as well. And uh, so I've always thought that the next generation would be more values oriented than the prior generation. And we're certainly seeing that. And, and the movements that we're seeing in the world are an outcome of the consciousness of that generation being more values and, and systems um, connected. You know, if you think about it, we really first saw the rise of systems thinking with Peter Senge in 93. So, you know, our generation, um, I'm not sure how old you are, but certainly my generation, you know, didn't get exposed to that work in high school and college. And it didn't really become part of the lexicon in management schools and Stanford and other places and um, MIT until early to mid 90s. So these next generations are, are, you know, they have not only the values set, but they now have the educational tools. And now you're seeing sustainability programs um, come out as well. So it, it's just a driver of the next generation. Now, what about in terms of the, the investors, the people investing in in um, kind of this impact uh, investing? Are they kind of the people that care maybe more about legacy and more about you know, the mark they're trying to leave rather than as hung up on, I'm trying to squeeze out every uh, percent of return or is that you have to do that as well? Like that's not separate. You know, it's interesting. Like Ken Heyman at Alliance Bernstein, who's their behavioral finance expert has said that if you think about this um, evolution, it's like a, a U chart. So if you can imagine a U on the top left corner you have fear and anxiety about, you know, personal safety and, and risk and, and having enough money to live. And as that risk decreases, the inherent drive to leave a legacy and, and provide more of a value statement increases. So that chart looks like a U. So what we're seeing over the past really 10 years is that family offices are starting to really respond and be driven by the grandchildren of the matriarchs and patriarchs of the families to have an interest and drive towards leaving a more sustainable, not just legacy, but also planet for these kids. So we're seeing a lot of families start to, it's interesting, like like parents don't listen to their kids, but they listen to their grandkids. So we're seeing um, a big shift there actually. And, And then in, the mass affluent space, it's really right now a bit of a political divide, unfortunately. Um, but, you know, a lot of people on the left are concerned about sustainable issues in the planet and want to start voting with their money and maybe feel a little bit powerless to vote with their wallet. And you're not seeing it as much on the, on the right side yet. 
Um, but there are pockets of, of interest there as well. So when you kind of flipped the switch into this world, um, were you nervous about that, that you would lose some folks? You know, I wasn't because we, we serve college professors. We have over 5,000 college professors as clients of our wealth management firm. It's not the whole firm, but it makes up probably 80% of our client base at this point. And I've been working that market since 1990. So, you know, to have been lucky enough to have a target market that was not going to react in any kind of, you know, disgust with my change of heart of where I was going was, you know, extremely comforting for me. Um, if I had had oil executives as my client base, it, it might have been a much more difficult business transition to make. But, you know, fortunately for us, it was it was really easy and everyone responded really well. And, you know, you had some clients who said, look, I don't want to give up return if you can assure me that you don't think we're going to give up return to go in this direction, then I'm happy to. But but that was maybe 1% of the clients. The other 99% all said I'd be willing to give up return, especially when we started doing this, because it was right around 16 in the election, and a lot of people felt you know disempowered uh, to a degree, and, and being able to vote with their wallet was actually a welcome relief. So it, it made it easy. But- there's a huge shift coming. I, I don't want to leave this to like this political discussion um, at, at all. I, I want to make sure that the audience understands that climate risk is about to get priced into the capital markets. This isn't something that I'm conjecturing. Uh, all the rating agencies have bought physical data risk companies that do geospatial analysis over the past 18 months the insurance companies as well are begun to partner with climate risk uh, organizations and agencies. And they're concerned about, you know, if you just start with a very simple, basic example, if you can own a municipal bond, and I tell you that you have a choice of, you know, two 20-year bonds at three and a half percent, both are hospital bonds, one's in downtown Tampa, where your value at risk due to climate change is around 94%. And one is in Rochester, New York, where your value at risk to any kind of future climate change is 8%. And they're the same yield, same coupon, same maturity. You're going to lean towards that Rochester bond once that rating is made available to you. And that's what is about to happen. So right now, climate risk is not priced in to the marketplace on mortgages, real estate, municipal bonds and, and other you know, types of bonds and, and stocks as well. But it is about to be. Literally, we are on the kind of line of demarcation of right before climate risk was priced into the market and right after it was priced into the market. So you think it's within, what, a few years, five years? No, 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 within six to 18 months maximum. Because you have MSCI, Moody's, Fitch, um, S&P, they all spent a lot of money buying these data companies over the past really six to 18 months. It doesn't take that long to incorporate those acquisitions into the ratings and, and data that you're providing. MSCI recently made a big announcement about it. Moody's made a big announcement about it. Um, Swiss Re and Aon just partnered with the Climate Service in Brooklyn. So they're they're worried, um, you know, and, and insurance companies are always the canary in the coal mine. Rating agencies, I'd say, are are probably second or sometimes right behind. Insurance companies are always first to pricing in risk. <clears throat> you know, if you think about 
our, our country, we used to build cities and then they burned down on a regular basis, whether it was, you know, Chicago or San Francisco, but it used to happen periodically because we just built cities out of wood and ultimately you'd have a fire and the city would be ruined or, or a big part of it. And then it was insurance companies after the San Francisco fire that basically said, we're not going to insure any more buildings until you guys start operating under strict fire codes. So they changed the whole entire building industry overnight. They're about to do the same thing with climate risk. So then they're just going to kind of jack up the rates for the coastal cities? Yes, yes definitely. Um, you know, there's a, a very, you know, interesting guy named Spencer Glendon, who has been a huge mentor to me in this industry, he ran Wellington's quant department for, I think, 20 or 25 years. And, and he said uh, at a conference that I was at, he said, when everyone's asking when, when it's when it's too late. And he was referring to the Florida real estate market. He, he said, everybody's literally calling him all the time now and saying, when, when do I need to sell? And that was his response. When, when everyone's asking you when, when, when it becomes when, it's too late. And what most people don't understand is that when you sign a mortgage for 30 years, you sign a commitment to keep insurance on that mortgage or you're in default of that mortgage. But the insurance company isn't on the hook for that. So the insurance company could walk away from properties where clients, investors, and the bondholders are still on the hook for it. And, and that's where you're going to see the disconnect. When, when the bondholders stop being willing or the insurance companies stop being willing to issue insurance on 30-year bonds in downtown Miami, that's the death blow. Um, because you, you can't build and you can't do construction without that. And, and that's all. This isn't, you know, some wild hyperbole from on, on my part. The Commodities Trading Future Board came out last week with, a, I think it's a 90-page paper. Um, and, and these are people that are, were appointed by the current administration, both Democrats and Republicans. And they came out with a 90-page paper that basically said that climate risk is the biggest risk facing the capital markets and a whole list of um, things that need to be done in order to address it. And McKenzie came out at the end of last year with a 300-page paper on case studies of how physical climate change is going to have a huge impact on the capital markets. Again, the scientists say 2050, you have to start worrying about it. But if you're a bondholder in 2020 and you're holding a 30-year bond, you have to start worrying about that today then. Um, so the, and, you know, the, the end user might be able to be fine in that house till 2050, according to, you know, some of the science, but the bondholder can't write that bond after 2020, not for 30 years. Right. So they're, so they they got to make their risk decision a lot sooner. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. But unfortunately also the risk that, uh, you know, that scientists said that we would see fires like this in California in three decades, that was what all the um, climate scientists had agreed upon, that based on you know, all the climate models over the last 30, 40 years, that we'd see the heat temperature records being broken and the fires that we're seeing today in three decades, and, and we're seeing them all now. So that's quite concerning, unfortunately. Now, if somebody wanted to learn more about your firm, whether they're an investor or a financial professional that wants to maybe um, kind of get on board the train with you guys. Uh, what is the website? It's Gitterman, G-I-T-T-E-R-M-A-N, Wealth, W-E-A-L-T-H, 
Gittermanwealth.com, Gittermanwealth.com. And we run a TV show that's, you know, free for anyone to come and check out at FinTech, F-I-N-T-E-C-H dot TV, FinTech.TV. It's called The Impact. And we're actually the hosts of um, the Nest Summit or Climate Week in New York City next week. So we'll have about 44 programs with great speakers um, live all week at fintech.tv on climate change. Well, Jeff, thank you so much for sharing your story today. We really appreciate the work you're doing. Uh, You're doing important work. Thank you so much, Lee. I really appreciate the opportunity. All right. This is Lee Cantor. We'll see you all next time on Retirement Tips Radio. Retirement Tips Radio is brought to you by Business Radio X, the voice of business in your community. Currently serving over 25 markets, the Business Radio X network is growing fast. We're teaming up with retired execs and established entrepreneurs to support and celebrate local business leaders. If you'd like to make additional income while making a difference, discover more at brxteam.com. Dot com.